Hello, friend. Thank you, as always, for joining me here on The Tully Show. I did not expect to get as fired up as I did talking about the history of the Constitution. But here we are, a surprisingly animated conversation with author Ben Sheehan on the way. First things first, real quick, let me remind you on top of all the other stuff on my Patreon, every week I do Tully Time, a look at some headlines that you may not have heard about elsewhere. It's kind of evolved into this cool easy listening Saturday morning kind of show, like a cool glass of country time lemonade. Join us for Tully Time. You know what? I'll leave the most recent episode. I'll set it as free on Patreon. So when you're done here, you can go and uh, and hear some stuff like the curious case of what happened to Einstein's brain, the bread that made an entire island trip for several decades. And good news, female CEOs finally outnumber male ones named John. They didn't until recently, that and so much more every week and like 10 other shows at patreon.com slash Mike Tully. When you're done here, go listen to the most recent episode of Tully Time. It's free, patreon.com slash Mike Tully. Okay, you ready to start this show? <laughs> Uh, your host of the evening is a really funny dude. Um, I forgot his last name, but I've seen him before, and he's really funny. Uh, give it up for Mike. Oh, it's oh, hey! Coming to you live, on tape, from an above-ground basement in rapidly gentrifying Culver City adjacent California, boasting a partially obstructed view of the world-famous Hollywood sign. This is The Tully Show. I am your host, Mike Tully. Joining me today, a beacon of sanity and credible information just when the free world needs it most, the author of a book entitled OMG, WTF, Does the Constitution Actually Say? A non-boring guide to how our democracy is supposed to work. Hello and welcome, Ben Sheehan. Thank you for having me, Michael. It's a pleasure to be here. How did you come to write this book, and how did dinnertime conversations with your mother inform the creation of this book? When I was five or six years old, at absolutely no choice of my own, I was subjected to civics and government conversations at the dinner table by my parents because they worked in government and often were unloading on their frustrations of the day. And over the years, these conversations continued to happen. And as a proxy, I started to learn how the government worked. And very many years later, I realized the sort of wealth of information I had been subjected to uh, was actually useful. And I realized that maybe there's a way I could share that with other people um, by writing this book. That's terrific. I realized you're making me realize what missed opportunities I'm having with my children. I'm just filling their heads with bad takes on the NBA playoffs. So you're very, <laughs> you're very fortunate that you had that, uh, th that resource at your disposal. In your opinion, your informed opinion, how dumb is the average American about the civic life of our nation as it is and as it ought to be? Well, I think there's a two part answer to that. One is yes vary and the other is it's not our fault mm -hmm. so we're we're relatively uninformed you know barely half the country can name the three branches of government 
Um, people, a majority of Americans don't understand that private companies like Facebook and Twitter uh, don't have to abide by the First Amendment. They can restrict speech on their platform if they want. It drives me um, crazy. It just drives me crazy when people are like, how come Instagram can take this down? First Amendment. It's like, oh, it's a, it's a company. They can go. Anyway, go ahead. Yeah. So there's an organization, um, an institute, actually, the Annenberg Institute of Public Policy, which is at the University of Pennsylvania. They do this study every year uh, and they release it on Constitution Day um, where they depress the country by letting everyone know how bad we are at understanding civics and, and government and how it works. Numbers have fluctuated a little bit. I think during in the last four or five years, it's gone from something like only a quarter of people could name the three branches of government to maybe at highest 51 percent. Either way you look at it, it's still it's still pretty bad. But I would say that a lot of this is not our fault because I went to school in D.C. I only got a half a year of government in eighth grade. In my 13 year kindergarten through 12th grade uh, schooling, I got ha I got a, a semester of government in eighth grade and I went to school three miles, four miles from the Capitol. So there is something weird going on where this was actually the impetus for creating a public education system in the first place. And fast forward 200 plus years and only eight states uh, are requiring at least a year of it at some point, kindergarten through 12th grade. And yeah, I, I gather from the book, you're willing to indulge some conspiracy minded thinking in this regard that maybe the powers that be like it for people to not actually know how things are supposed to work. I do like to indulge in, uh, I should say, uh, conspiracies with some level of, of direction mm -hmm. um, or strong gut feeling. Yeah. But I, I would also add that when we do get civics education, it's usually at the federal level. We're learning about, you know, the you know Congress and the Supreme Court and the president. Um, we're very rarely going deeper to the other levels of government, like our state and our county and our you know city government or, or town government. Um, and that's honestly where most of our life is dictated. These levels of government have the most direct and frequent um, effects on our life. And so it's sort of like the things that have the most effect on our life, we're learning about the least. And that gives me a bit of a conspiratorial bent that why, why is this such an afterthought if this is something that A, we pay for and B, governs our decisions that affect our rights and our pocketbooks? Why is it something that is such an afterthought? Only, you know, five, for every uh, five cents that are spent on a, a public school student in the United States on civics and government education, a thousand times more than that um, is spent per student on STEM education. It seems to me that um, the Constitution plays like a similar role in our society that the Bible does. Like there's a, a people take it very, very seriously without knowing what it actually says. And people are very ready to get worked up about specifics of it, even though they have no idea how that specific works into the overall uh, text or sensibility of the document. It seems like people really kind of like to have documents that they, I remember reading this actually about Mein Kampf at some point, that it's like people liked knowing that there was a book on the shelf that there nobody could get through it. It was unreadable. But the fact that we know that the smart guy wrote a plan but the fact that we can't read it means we can always kind of make the plan what we want it to be and appeal to this this sacred tablet that Moses or the founding fathers, you know, brought down from the mountain. Let me turn what I'm saying into a question. Tell me one thing that you think the greatest number of Americans might be surprised to learn about the Constitution and what it means or what it was intended to mean. 
I would say people would be very surprised to learn that the people who wrote it expected or supported it, um, expected it to be changed more frequently than it has been. And what I mean by that is there was a conversation. Now, during the writing of the, um, the Constitution, Thomas Jefferson was not, was not there. He was in France. But he was corresponding by letter with James Madison, who was called the father of the Constitution, who, if you look at all of the people who were in that room, he probably contributed the most. He's the one who took all the notes during the convention. So the only reason we know what happened is because we have Madison's very detailed notes. Um, he wrote the original draft. The Virginia plan was the first uh, plan presented at the Constitution. It had the different branches of government. So he and Jefferson were corresponding by letter. And Jefferson said, and, and Madison didn't disagree, uh, that the, he thought the Constitution should be changed every 19 years. Like not just even amended, like a brand, a brand new Constitution. The idea being that what fit you as a, a coat that fit you as a child, why would you expect that to fit you as a grown man? Because society changes and morals change and laws change and peoples change and the Constitution should change with society uh, rather than society being beholden to a original draft of the Constitution written in 1787. So number one, we have the mechanism to change the Constitution. Our founders wanted it, want us to change it to fit the times. Um, and my belief, my personal belief, and certainly Thomas Jefferson, and I imagine others would agree, is that it isn't changing enough to keep up with modern society. Yeah. And it almost seems like Again, to go back to the Bible comparison, the older it gets, the more sacrosanct it it gets, and the less people people feel unworthy, frankly, to you know these guys in wigs that are have been on the money that I've had in my pocket since my grandfather gave me a dollar when I was two. Can I actually say that I'm smarter than those people? Even though we have the historical evidence, these people were saying, "Yes, you're just as good as us. You're just as smart as us." Um, there's all sorts of things that the Supreme Court is ruling on these days that the Founding Fathers never even really uh, uh, considered. Um, so uh, was there ever a conversation? So you, you say in the book it was supposed to be every 19 years the Constitu Constitution should expire. 20 years after it was written, did anybody say, hey, that guy said that thing, maybe we should rip this thing up and start over? Uh, no. Uh, and it, again, this was just a proposal. I understand. Um, yeah, yeah, it was in a letter. Tom yeah. Jefferson had made, but this is, but this is to give you an idea that at no point did they think this document was sacrosanct and shouldn't mm -hmm. be changed and amended. Um, obviously the entirety of article five is the amendment process. Um, no, I will say that 20 years, your 20 year number is interesting because it gets me thinking. Um, that was the earliest date that, um, the government could ban uh, the international slave trade. They gave themselves a 20, oh, 20, I should say 20, 21 year window. Uh, January 1st, 1808 was the earliest day that America could remove uh, itself from the international slave trade. And that was part of a compromise that helped get Southern states again to ratify the constitution because you had um, 13 states at the time and only 12 attended the convention. Rhode Island didn't. Attend. Yeah, well, yeah, what was up and with you that? you needed not I don't know. They're kind of a weird state. Got you know, it. Cool. Smallest land wise. They kind of do their own thing. I respect that. But uh, I do too. But the, so you needed nine states to, to ratify. So you need to get a full, you know, 75%. So you had to get some of Southern states to go along with it. And obviously, you know, there was a, uh, a large cultural and economic uh, difference uh, between uh, the Northern states and Southern states. So 
you had to do some make some concessions. This is one of the concessions is that you, they gave themselves a 20 year window, uh, which which when the United States could not remove itself from the international slave trade. Um, so that might be another thing people might be surprised to to, to learn or may, or maybe not surprised. Arguments around the Constitution and you know our nation's founding documents, we, we argue about them all the time as trying to you know read the tea leaves of the past. But I was surprised in reading your book and just checking out your social media how much like fairly substantial contemporary stuff is going on in regard to the laws of the the federal land. When was the last new amendment? And more importantly, there's a new amendment being discussed now. Is that so? Like that actually stands a reason. I'm sure that people can float things whenever they want. That stands a reasonable chance of passing. So the last time we amended the Constitution, I'll step back and say there are 27 amendments to the Constitution. Mm -hmm. uh, Ten of those were all at once in 1791. They're more famously known as the Bill of Rights. Yeah. Since then, we've amended the Constitution in additional 17 times. The last time was in 1992. There's uh, a whole a whole story behind this amendment, but I will I will keep it short and say that this was actually an amendment that was proposed as part of the original Bill of Rights that didn't make it in. And many years later, a college student was doing a paper on the Bill of Rights and found this unexpired amendment that Madison had written and that had originally been proposed and didn't end up. And the amendment said that if Congress wants to give itself a pay raise, uh, it has to let an election happen between the pay raise takes effect. Otherwise, they could just give themselves a pay raise and it starts tomorrow and they could just keep giving themselves more money of our taxpayer money. Yeah. So he thought this was a good amendment and he wrote a, a paper on it for his poli sci class in the early 80s at University of Texas and he got a C and he got upset about it and he thought he deserved better. And so he started writing state legislatures across the country trying to get more legislatures to ratify it after 10 years of writing legislatures, he was able to get up to 38 and Alabama became the 38th state in 1992 to ratify this amendment. Um, I believe it was seven years ago. He, he's still mad about this grade. So he reached out to the University of Texas and petitioned them to give him an A plus and they only gave him an A. But a, a, wow. a, a anger over a grade yeah. that led to pettiness led to the 27th Amendment to the United States Constitution. Really respectable levels of pettiness all around on that one. But I'm sorry if I missed it. What What is the nature of the it, – it was the amendment to for them giving themselves raises. So it's, it's that sort yeah, of, so ar instead of arcane – If Congress wants to give itself a pay raise, yeah. then a election has to take place before the pay raise takes Goes effect. into effect. Got so it. you cannot give yourself a pay raise and have it take place the same Congress that you voted for that. An election has to happen in between so that you're not just giving yourselves money the next day. It could lead to obvious corruption, sure, um, sure, sure, sure. As, as we could all infer. But to answer your second question mm. about the amendment that's being voted on actually today while we're recording this in no the way. Senate um, is something, yeah, it's called the Equal Rights Amendment. And this is something that was proposed originally 100 years ago. And it didn't get a um, the two-thirds necessary, proposed, I think, every year uh, leading up to 1972. And in 72, it was able to get the necessary two-thirds support in both the House and the Senate in order to get proposed to the states. Because it is, I will say, the people who wanted us to amend the Constitution, they also made it very hard. Um, and there are groups of conservative, liberal, and libertarian scholars who today don't agree on much, but they all agree that it should be a little bit easier to uh, propose and ratify amendments to the Constitution. Um, so what happened is they got the necessary two-thirds. It was sent to the states in 1972, and for a period, 
uh, over the next seven years, uh, 35 states signed on to this amendment. And it's called the Equal Rights Amendment. It basically says that people, you know, cannot be denied equal rights on the basis of their sex. Pretty simple. Um, at the time, they were specifically talking about women. Uh, since then, this has taken on a new meaning and actually something the Supreme Court expanded on the word sex a few years ago with an opinion that Neil Gorsuch wrote where he said that the word sex in the Civil Rights Act also includes people based on sexual orientation and gender identity because those things can't be unlinked. But long story short, there was an a expiration date. They only got 35 states. You need 38. And so it's all done, right? Well, not so fast because in the past, amendments, other amendments to the Constitution gave themselves a seven-year window to ratify, and they wrote it in the body of the amendment. This amendment, the expiration date is in the introduction. So it's not actually in the amendment. It's like in the post-it note that went along with the amendment, so to speak. So there's an argument being made that some judges agree with, some don't, to say that, well, the expiration date is not actually part of the amendment. So can't Congress just remove the expiration date if it's not included in the actual body of the amendment's text? It's an that, that If it's not included in the amendment, it's just an arbitrary deadline. So what the Senate is voting on today is to remove the time limit. And by removing the time limit, it would allow the three states that have ratified the amendment since 2017, uh, I believe that's Nevada, Illinois, and Virginia, um, that makes 38. And so if you remove the expiration date, then suddenly this amendment gets added as the 28th Amendment to the Constitution. What practical implications would you expect its ratification to have five, 10 years down the line? How would we see a difference in our lives? So right now, people who oppose adding the amendment or just think it's unnecessary will say that, well, we already have equal rights. Yep. Right. I mean, there's the in the 14th Amendment, it says everybody gets equal protection of the laws. Yeah. But the Supreme Court, more specifically, Justice, former Justice Antonin Scalia has said, well, that amendment and, and, and other just justices and, and judges have have agreed over the years have said that, well, that amendment was actually written to protect African-Americans, former slaves, black people from being denied their equal rights in the wake of the end of the Civil War. So they weren't talking about any other groups of people other than that. Now, they just wrote down equal protection of the laws. They didn't say it only applied to African-Americans. But yeah. if you're looking for, if we're subscribing to the idea of originalism or what people were thinking at the time the amendment was written, he was very clearly talking about African-Americans, more specifically African-American men. Mm -hmm. um, so the idea is that maybe it doesn't include, you know, the Constitution therefore doesn't it doesn't say that you're allowed to discriminate, but it doesn't prevent discrimination against other groups of people. And so over the years, the Supreme Court has sort of created this weird system of hierarchy where some groups are more protected than others in the eyes of the Constitution. So the highest group of people is something called um, is a, a group of people that are subject to strict scrutiny, meaning the Supreme Court will look at some law or something that violates the Constitution and, and say, well, the state has to have a really specific interest in this law. It can't deny rights to people based on their race, color, national origin, religion, or alienage. But it doesn't say sex. Doesn't say gender identity or sexual orientation. That that's the most protected. So groups um, like uh, you know like like th those groups I mentioned are are 
a little lower and they're subject to intermediate scrutiny and then there's a whole other group that's uh, groups of people that are subject to rational basis. So over the years, the Supreme Court has basically kind of created these tiers of people where some groups have more protection than other groups. Um, and at least for people on the basis of sex, which as the Supreme Court has said, now may also include people based on gender identity, sexual orientation, that would give people the most, the, the highest amount of protection. It would be as protected as race, as protected as religion, as protected as national origin, if that makes sense. It does. It's just so, I know I should stop being surprised or disappointed by this, but I've been to the Drudge Report today, and I was on the Economist app yesterday looking at the U.S. section, and there's no mention. I mean, it's not even not the headline, it's not even the fifth story down. Like, we're all, everybody's arguing about politics, and nobody even is aware of the most significant things that are happening in, it'd be really, it's really strange. Again, I'm an NBA fan. It'd be like everybody arguing about the NBA, but not watching the games and not being aware of the outcome. It's, it's again, I don't, I don't have a question. It's just such a baffling phenomenon. I'm not telling you anything that you don't know. I would like you to tell us more about, and I'm afraid I know the outcome here, uh, something that I think was uh, resolved one way or another a little while back, the Electoral Count Reform and Presidential Transition Improvement Act. Uh, no. Noteworthy to note, proposed by Susan Collins, Republican of Maine, very often the left wing's hope of the reasonable, swingable Republican. So perceived as a centrist sort of Republican, but a Republican nonetheless. And obviously, if people aren't familiar with it, you can just tell by the wording, this is huge blinking lights. Let's address January 6th. Let's make sure that can never happen again. So what what was it and where does it stand? Sure. One really quick point, I think, to your to you make a, a really good observation that this story is be getting a lot of attention about yeah. the um, Equal Rights Amendment. And I would just say that's probably because people may th think that it's not it, even if it passes the Senate, it's not going to pass a Republican House. And so it might not get oh, I see. Uh, the, the odds of it actually getting, you know, happening are low. Or even if it does pass, a court could, you know, the Supreme Court could say, well, you know, we actually are going to keep the thing. So it, it faces hurdles. I think that's why. I see. Um, but still, I think it's notable that the Senate is voting on this. And this is something that has been, you know, in the works for a hundred years of women fighting for yep. this amendment to explicitly be protected in the Constitution. Um, People love arguing like about for, amendments. I mean, that's that's a thing. They do. Yeah, right. I'm, why are we, we're, I'm sure there's a, good a whole subgenre of podcasts that's <laughs> specific to arguing about amendments. Yeah. Um, and lots of Reddit subgroups as well. Mm -hmm. I would say for the Electoral Count Act that this is something that had a lot of bipart that that ha had and still has a lot of bipartisan support because the truth is, you know, the the electoral college is set up in the Constitution. It's um, you know parts of Article Two and uh, the Twelfth Amendment explain the process, and it's a weird process. It started one way, it, it changed a little bit, um, but there's still, even though it goes into detail, there's still a lot that's left up to. Congress, right, to, to, to sort of decide. And they passed this law in 1887 um, called the Electoral Count Act that was in the about 10 years after the most contested presidential election in American history, more so than 2000, in my opinion, more so than 2000, more so than any, anything since or, or before that, where they literally didn't make the decision about who won until two days before the inauguration date. 
Uh, it all, the United States almost slipped into a second civil war. Uh, it was, you know, it marked the end of reconstruction. It was a whole a- absolute mess. Uh, people tried to assassinate the, you know, the, uh, one of the candidates. It, it was basically the, 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 the initial, the person who looked like they were going to win initially, uh, was up by 19 electoral votes. And then there were some states that were outstanding. Those states, Results came in. There were cries of fraud and so on and so forth. Uh, and they all went to the other guy, uh, Rutherford B. Hayes, and he won by one electoral vote. And so the people, the group that lost, uh, freaked out and, you know, threatened to have a, a parallel inauguration. Long story short, it took 10 years, Congress 10 years to respond to this. And they responded with this law written in 1887 that is, um, absolute batshit. It has a 300-word paragraph. It is unintelligible in many places. And yet this is the law that has governed every presidential election since 1888, when I guess the first uh, election after that law was passed um, happened. And, you know, we've had a lot of elections where it wasn't contested and things went fine, but there always has been the ability for members of Congress to challenge the electoral results from, from certain states. Um, but in, in you know, never before had it been challenged exactly the way that it happened in 2020. Um, and there were real concerted efforts to exploit a lot of the very real loopholes that existed in this law. Most famously, uh, saying that you know the the law coupled with the Constitution allows the vice president to single-handedly throw out the results of states if he doesn't agree with how the elections happened in those states. Um, ultimately, vi- former Vice President Pence decided not to do that, which I believe is the right decision. But he was being pressured by a lot of people to do that, and there were efforts to overturn the results of the election um, in certain states, send the elector, send different electors votes to Congress. But it pointed out, you know, some real loopholes that had already existed, and it's an example of our government operating on, you know laws, but also sometimes a series of handshakes and just norms and things that we've all agreed to do. Um, And we've never really had groups of people try to exploit those guardrails to this extent. So Congress decided there really has to be changes going forward. And so they passed the Electoral Count Act that clarifies the vice president does not have the ability to single-handedly throw out um, electoral votes. Uh, It raises the number of representatives and senators needed to object to a state's returns. In the original Electoral Count Act, you only needed one one representative and one senator um, to make everybody break for two hours and debate a state. So they raised the threshold for this. They clarified, although in my opinion, not far enough, that you really need a, like a catastrophic event to occur um, in order for you know a state to declare that an election was failed and have to rerun it. Um, so they definitely tried to make it a lot harder to throw out a state's you know lawfully obtained results. Although I do think there are still things that could happen at the county level that this doesn't necessarily cover. Um, this definitely does go far in making sure that. Congress and, you know, certain state governments can't uh, subvert the will of the people. Uh, but there's some still still some stuff at the local level um, that I don't think this law fully covers. But this passed. This this worked. 
It is passed. It is passed. It was part of the budget package at the end of 22. It has passed. Oh, it is yeah. in effect. I think that's a good thing. I'm yeah. glad Susan Collins sponsored it. I'm glad all the Republicans who voted for it did vote for it. Yeah. Um, I think that is something that everyone, or I should not everyone, but enough people got together and realized that this is this is truly a, a threat to uh, the democracy that we have left in this country. Uh, and they passed this, and I'm glad they did. Okay, so I think most of us, if we didn't know what, if we never heard of electors or know what they are we if you're paying attention you learned learned quite a bit about that in the last few years they are explicitly you know that that role is laid out in the constitution it sounds like you're saying fairly effectively this act closed the possibility uh, of of alternate electors were those ever a thing that any credible objective person might look at and go hey you shouldn't do it but yeah you kind of can send alternate electors because most of us that sounded like you're sending goons like this is just a fantasy <laughs> we're gonna just get eight guys who gave me money call them electors and have them go and say kentucky votes this was there ever anything more credible to the notion of uh alternate electors than than i think there was so the answer to your question is both both yes and no there definitely were some goons in states mm -hmm. that uh were um assembled and, and attempted to send uh, electoral votes that hadn't been certified by any state authorities so they wouldn't be treated as an alternate slate. Like one of the loopholes was that, um, you know, if uh, alternate slates of elector, if the a state sends two different sets of returns, um, you know, Congress has some ability to accept one or reject the other, this clear, this loophole was closed in saying that it's only the, the, the governor certified slate is the one we're going to honor. Uh, not like rogue legislators getting together. But it does get to a fundamental part of our constitution and government. Um, and that is, we don't fundamentally have a constitutional right to vote for president. Mm, right. And we never have. States get to decide how the electors are appointed, this group of people uh, that actually directly cast votes for president and vice president. And since 1880, every state has held a popular vote where we all go to the polls and vote who we want to be president. And then whichever uh, nominee gets picked, like that, the, that party's electors get to cast votes for those people. But here's where it gets weird. Before that, for the first hundred years, several states didn't have presidential elections. Just the state legislators chose the electors themselves because they have the ability to do that in the Constitution. They could pick the manner of choosing the electors. If we, the state legislature of California, want to pick the electors ourselves, could pass a law so we can do that. Or right. if we want to have people of California vote to choose, you know, which party's electors get sent, that's another option. So we're all accustomed to thinking that this is a constitutional right we have. It's not. It's a courtesy. Um, so that's, um, that's, that's one thing. Two is that there was a, th there, is, there is still a threat. A state could choose to not do this, right? But it's become significantly harder to do that, almost impossible to do that after the election has already happened. So the problem was really that these states tried to change the rules after the election transpired, mm -hmm. which was very difficult to do. They could do it even before the next election. They could do that and change it so that there is no popular vote. And, you know, the state gets the state legislators get to pick the electors themselves. They'd have to pass a law. It would probably lead to a re revolt in the state. You know, I can't imagine the people of Montana would be thrilled that suddenly they no longer get to vote in a presidential election and their state legislators are just going to pick the electors. Um, 
but I, I think it does. It is good to remind people that we all get to vote for president only as a courtesy, a strong courtesy, a courtesy that's existed for you know a, a century and a half, but still it is it is really a, a courtesy. It's a phrase that I came across in preparing to speak to you today, the independent state legislature theory. I, I gather that's tied into this somehow. I don't even, have you already been talking about that or, or what is that? I've talked about it a little bit. So this, it, it, we're all talking, all of this talks about the same part of the, the constitution, article two, section one, which says mm -hmm. that, um, you know, it's up to uh, the state legislature to choose the manner of appointing electors. Uh, the state legislature theory is something that has both to do with Article 1 and Article 2 because um, it comes out of a gerrymandering case in North Carolina where uh, the Republican-controlled uh, state legislature in North Carolina drew a very lopsided map. The state Supreme Court struck down that map and said this is not okay. Um, and the state legislature in North Carolina sued and said that according to the Constitution, the, the, the st North Carolina Supreme Court can't do that because it says that we get to decide, state legislatures, we get to decide the time, places, and manner of elections for Congress. Um, it also, the Constitution says that they get to decide how the electors are appointed. So this idea um, is very new. It's a very new interpretation. And it's sort of like, it, it's kind of like a trick because it says that the word legislature in the Constitution means only that branch of government, right? Just the state legislature. Whereas throughout history, it's been interpreted to mean the entire lawmaking process, like the state legislature, the governor's signature, the, the court, the state court to strike down a law. Um, it's never been interpreted to say that the state legislature is this all powerful branch and that the governor and the courts have no check on it whatsoever. In fact, the Supreme Court has in previous cases has ruled the opposite and said that the governor can veto uh, unfair maps or that um, you know, even recently that the you know, gerrymandering cases are still subject to, um, uh, to state court oversight. So it's this idea that suddenly these state legislatures are kind of all powerful and it hinges on this reading of the word um, legislature. And the case was heard in December and will be decided sometime in June. Um, at least four justices prior to the case being heard, at least four justices endorsed some version of this independent state legislative series. So the idea is that it's hinging on Amy Coney Barrett to uh, be the swing, the swing vote. Um, after the case was heard, the feeling is that maybe there's less support for that and it's too far fetched. But I, um, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be, you know, totally convinced that the Supreme Court wouldn't embrace this. I mean, look what happened less than a year ago. They took away a, a right that had been recognized for 50 years. Uh, there are lots of other decisions I think this current court has done that has gone against precedent. So I would say that people should pay close attention. And if the Supreme Court did embrace the most extreme version of this, then it would give state legislatures massive amounts of unchecked power to gerrymander, uh, you know, uh, districts in the U.S. House and um, also to, di to dictate our laws for how we do or don't vote for president. Let's talk about the Supreme Court for a second. How does the, the, the powers, how do the powers of the Supreme Court nowadays uh, and just the role that they play in the overall government, in what way, if any, does it differ from 
the way that you understand the Constitution as the people who wrote the Constitution intended it. It has seemed to me, just as a guy, for some time that we ask, we all t- we, we argue over what the Supreme Court should do, but I question whether or not they should even be hearing lots and lots and lots of cases. I'll use the example of abortion. When you try to get to what the founding fathers thought about how many trimesters are acceptable, you know, and all we're going off of is the pursuit of life. Okay, so there's a right to life. So let's go from there. That's fucking reading tea leaves is what it is. That's once again, we we are essentially making them priests. This is like the role of like the wise man in a fantasy epic of like, go up on the mountain and try to see by the weather what the God wants us to do. I think the Supreme Court, there are many, many things that in a perfect world, people would bring to the Supreme Court and they would go, this isn't us. We're the referees. You guys go vote on this at the state or federal level. We will let you know if you're literally breaking the rules of the Constitution because that's our job. But we don't have a damn thing to say about whether or not there is a constitutional right to abortion or access to abortion or what sort of limitations might be on that. What what are your thoughts on that? So it's a it's a it's a few things. One is that. I'll just start by saying that the people who wrote this document were not thinking about abortion while they of course, were it. Right. They were a bunch of middle-aged white dudes in a air-conditionless room in 1787. You know, they this is not something they were like top of mind. Yeah. Um, so, you know, even the protections that existed or that I should say were recognized by the Supreme Court, um, you know, to be fully honest, are, are tenuous at best. It's yeah. a reading of, you know, in the 14th Amendment, it says that we can't be deprived of life, liberty, or property without due process of law. So that must mean that we have a right to life, liberty, or property. Under liberty, we have a right to privacy. As part of a right to privacy, we have a right to an abortion. That's the logic that of Roe v. Wade. So I'm not saying that I don't think we have we could be inferred that we have a constitutional right, but you know the distance that you have to go from the original text to get there is a long way, whether you not you support it or not. Um, what I do think is interesting is in the Ninth Amendment. This is something that is kind of an overlooked amendment that basically says, you know, we didn't list all of our rights in the Constitution. What is in the Constitution can't be used to deny the rights that we do have that we didn't include. For me. I personally believe that people have the right to body bodily autonomy. And so you could say, and you know, under maybe it falls under the Ninth Amendment. One of the justices in Roe made that made that argument. Um, but the problem is that we have the Supreme Court interpreting and as you say, reading the tea leaves, or really reading between the lines, uh, in a very short document. You know, the original constitution was under five thousand words with the amendments, it's less than eight thousand words. So there's just not that much in there. So we have the Supreme Court filling in those lines and and reading between them. And I will also say two things. One is that if you if any four justices, you know, four of the nine justices agree to hear a case, you get to hear a case. So it's up. You just need four people to four of the justices to agree to hear a case and the the Supreme Court will hear it Um, separately. Originally, it wasn't clear that the Supreme Court even had the ability to strike down laws. This is something that they themselves interpreted as their own power uh, in a case called Marbury versus Madison, I believe, 1803, um, where they decided that, well, they 
are the arbiters of, you know, whether or not laws run afoul of the Constitution or, you know, how they should be interpreted, how the Constitution should be interpreted. And so therefore, if we think that a law is inconsistent with the Constitution, we now have the ability to strike that down. It's called judicial review. It's not in the original Constitution. The Supreme Court interpreted the Constitution to give it that power. And we've all been going along with it, more or less, for over 200 years. Um, so, you know, there is a lot of evidence, I, I think, to show that the court has grown maybe a lot more powerful than the people who wrote our founding document originally intended. Um, and I think we're seeing some very clear examples of this with a lack of adhering to ethics, where you have Supreme Court justices going on, you know, vacations of billionaires for 20 years who buy their properties. It just came out recently, in addition to Clarence Thomas uh, having this relationship with a, uh, a billionaire who literally owns the home that his mother currently lives in, uh, that another uh, right uh, wing donor um, bought a property of Neil Gorsuch's that had been on the market for two years. It's just there's a code of ethics that exists, a much stronger code of, ex of ethics that exists at the federal level for judges that are not Supreme Court justices. Um, and I think we're really learning uh, in real time uh, the the fact that there's a lot of room for error, corruption, um, interpreting power beyond originally intended in Supreme Court. And we really need to reform that. In your opinion, does the, the, um, I want to say the apparent, I don't think anybody is debating the, the facts of the, the gifts and perks that Clarence Thomas has been receiving for the better part of two decades. I guess it's the debate is I, I read the interview with the, the Republican donor guy who's like, who, me, what? Mm -hmm. Um, and, and I honestly, <laughs> in certain ways he may, you know, I bought his mom's house cause I think he's a great American and I want to build a museum there someday. Right. And, and, and I, I, who cares if she's it's a $150,000 house. I'm a billionaire. What do I care? It's not a mm -hmm. great, it's, it's not an insane argument. It's worth hearing his, sure. his side of the story, of course, before we rush to judgment. That having been said, we've heard his side of the story. Having heard his side of the story, do you, in your informed opinion, believe that his behavior rises to the level of impeachability? Not to say will it happen, but do you think it, it meets that threshold? There are certain things, purchases, um, gifts that he received that according to the current uh, Supreme Court rules that the Supreme Court has made for itself, that he violated by not disclosing that. Mm -hmm. So if the remedy for violating those rules by not disclosing those gifts, those trips, uh, those purchases um, is impeachment, then it's impeachment. I do think that, you know, this is more of a referendum on uh, impeachment as a mechanism to punish or remove an official um, in itself, because the truth is that I don't think the people who wrote the Constitution predicted this level of partisan vitriol. You know, part, political parties didn't exist yet when the Constitution was written. They, they formed pretty quickly into George Washington's first term. He was famously the only president we've had that was not a member of a political party. But I don't think that our founding fathers um, believed that it would rise to the level where people would adhere to what's good for their party over what's good for the country. 
and these large majorities and consensus um, things that they built in. I think they thought that, you know, people would get together uh, and agree, regardless of what ideology, beliefs, parties they had, if somebody was actually a threat to the country. Um, and as we've seen, that just has not happened. I think impeachment and removal is the real only, really the only mechanism um, that we have to remove uh, um I mean, the 25th Amendment is a, a different story, but it's the, the real um, mechanism we, we have to remove both a president and a Supreme Court justice um, or a judge of any level of the federal government. And it's sparingly been been used. And I think there are a lot of instances where somebody has been deserving of impeachment and removal and has not received it uh, because Congress can't agree on whether or not to punish somebody. So the, the mechanism that we have for for that is a really important check and balance. I think we're 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 now seeing in hindsight um, that it is ineffective. Uh, if we're talking about the Constitution, obviously, at least in our current society, the banger is the Second Amendment. So I, I do want to talk to you about that. Get your take on that. Now, uh, I, I don't, I don't. The way that we come into these things and our experiences as a person and cultural and the politics we're raised around, obviously, inform the way that we think. I wasn't raised in a gun culture that I was aware. I mean, I don't know how many dads had a handgun hidden somewhere, but it wasn't a part of. I grew up in uh, uh, New Jersey, but nobody. I don't remember being indoctrinated very strongly one way or another. So I, I do feel like I came into this with something of an open mind. It's always seemed blatantly obvious to me that when we're talking about guns in the Constitution, we're also talking about well-regulated militias and that that's not a coincidence. And it would be very, very, very hard. You're talking about a nation that has just emerged from a revolution against um, a superpower that on paper should have, you know, could have won the war if it had devoted enough resources to it. This is a generation of men who understood that the price of freedom can be defending in a military fashion, dropping your hammer and getting a gun and going to the field. And the fact that the guns only come up in the context of a well-regulated militia, it's blatantly obvious to me that the two are inextricably bound and that the Constitution therefore doesn't have a whole hell of a lot to say, something, but not a lot to say about guns during uh, peacetime, you know, when the nation is not under siege. Obviously, not everybody in America agrees with that. I, I gather, based on reading your book, you maybe don't even find that quite as compelling an argument as as I do. I think you allow for a little bit more wiggle room and interpretation of uh, gun rights than maybe I do. Um, I will say this about the a couple things about the Second Amendment. One yeah. is you're 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 correct. I think it's pretty obvious to me. It's obvious to former Chief Justice Warren Burger. It's obvious to a lot of other justices that you know the Second Amendment is one sentence, one long sentence broken up with you know three could argue oddly placed commas. Pretty bad sentence. Um, yeah, it's a badly written sentence. And and there there were there are previous you know drafts of the Second Amendment. Um, I think all relatively making it clear that they're talking about militias. But one thing is that by having, you know, states have basically state defense forces, 
right, who could be called upon uh, the federal, by the federal government, by the president in times of need. It's a brand new country. We don't have a lot of resources. So having this militia that it back, you know, early on was basically every able-bodied white man uh, between the ages of like 17 and 44 um, that could have a gun for use, you know, in their state's defense force for use for the for federal reasons if the militia was called to service. Um, it was really about having reserve forces. And a, a byproduct of that was that at the same time, states having these defense forces or people who could be called to serve, you know, de- defend on behalf of their state is a check on federal tyranny, right? Because if all of these different states have these defense forces that can be called on by the president to fight a war against an existential threat or external threat, um, you know, also it protects from the federal government, you know, being tyrannical against the people of each state. Mm-hmm. So it has two two functions, help the country, pool resources, protect from the military turning against a state or the people of a state. No, nowhere does it say that people have the right to uh, guns for hunting or sport or even self-defense like that that interpretation of having firearms to collect to have for self-defense um and i'm not saying that you don't have the right or that your state couldn't give you the right or that um congress couldn't give you the right but if we're talking just about the second amendment it doesn't it doesn't say that you have a right to just have a gun for any reason it's very clearly talking about defending your state defending the united states um, and the first time that this was interpreted outside of that was in 2008 in a case called District of Columbia versus Heller, where the Supreme Court said for the first time that unconnected to your ability to be a part of your state's defense force, unconnected to your ability to be a part of the militia, which, by the way, nowadays is the National Guard, going back to the Dick Act and I think 1903, Congress passed the law saying that, you know, uh, the militia were establishing like an, a, for, a formal militia, the National Guard. Yeah, um, yeah give the National Guard so guns. Sounds great. They should totally have them. And if Joe Biden wants to right. march down into Texas and lead an army, have the Texas National Guard. I'll fight with the Texas National Guard if Joe Biden wants to lead an army into Texas to tyrannize it. But that's anyway, go ahead. Yeah, I mean, but and so there's also this, you know, then there's the unorganized militia, which doesn't really, you know, regardless of how you look at the word militia, you have to be called to service by either your governor or the president. If it's not a, a, a formal structured militia, then you're just a dude with a gun. Yeah. Um, so I think that, you know, that what happened in 2008 really severed for the first time this connection between militia and militia eligibility and um, weapons ownership. And the court said that you have the right, people of Washington, D.C. in this case, have the right to have a handgun in the home for self-defense, according to the Second Amendment. That 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 case was expanded on in 2010. It was extra, It was extended to the state level in McDonald v. Chicago. Um, in Catano, Massachusetts, they said it expanded. It applied to even weapons that didn't exist at the time of uh, the nation's founding. Uh, and in that case, I think it was a stun gun. And also now, most recently, uh, in um, the Bruin case, where the Supreme Court says this right applies to you outside of the home. If you have con- concealed carry, if you're carrying a, a gun, if you're on the way to a gun range, whatever, if you're traveling outside of your home, you still have this right. So we're talking about four Supreme Court cases, 2008 and later, that have expanded the meaning of the Second Amendment beyond what it had been understood to mean the first 200 plus years that it existed. And in between uh, the time when the Second Amendment was written and 
before 2008, there were like maybe three Supreme Court cases that dealt with the Second Amendment interpreting it. So I think it's really interesting to see how how recently, in the last 15 years, the Supreme Court has drastically expanded the meaning of the Second Amendment. And again, I'm not saying that states have the ability to pass gun laws. Yes. Congress can pass gun laws. But in terms of what protections specifically the Second Amendment offers, that understanding has been expanded drastically in the last 15 years by the Supreme Court. And it's not interesting. To me, it's 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 outrageous and it's unacceptable. And it's an even better example of what I was just talking about when I used abortion as an example where we're, we're reading tea leaves uh, where, frankly, we don't even have tea leaves. The, the, the Constitution doesn't address, and, and, and I want to be very clear because our dialogue is so asinine and poisoned, I'm not saying the Constitution does not give you the right to concealed carry or whatever, ergo, give me your gun. I'm merely saying the Supreme Court, in my opinion, I feel very strongly with this, has no opinion. It should, ought to have no opinion on this, shouldn't be weighing in on this. And we all know, like, we, I respect a, 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 a clever legislator who goes, here's the goal that I want to achieve. Let's look at the plan. That's just being a good lawyer. How can I achieve the thing that I want to achieve? And if the Supreme Court is going to grant itself the power to give me things I want that I can't get the votes for, well, then of course you're going to fucking do that. The point is that the Supreme, we're asking the Supreme Court to, to strip themselves of power. And maybe we're just asking too much of human nature or the momentum of, of, of history, but it, it's, it is out. It, it's, it, I mean, I know it sounds, it sounds crazy to say it, but I don't think the second amendment really tells us whether or not Americans have a right to bear arms outside of a military context. And that is something that we ought to freaking vote on. Stop trying to parse these, this handful of poorly written sentences that were written with a pencil that was made out of like a goose feather. <laughs> I, I think you've, you've made a really important point, which is leading to me to the, really the, the thing that I think is my most important personal takeaway from writing this book. Mm -hmm. uh, my most my biggest takeaway I've had of just spending time with this, this material, with the Constitution, is that the federal government is ultimately limited. Yes, the Supreme Court has expanded its power. Yes, you know, there's debates over what the president can and can't do and all this stuff. At the end of the day, more of our rights are handled at the state level. The state level is, in my opinion, the most powerful branch of government, and of the branches of the state government, it's the state legislature that has the most power over our lives. And throughout the Constitution, it constantly says things are left up to the state level. The Tenth Amendment, if it's not a federal power, if it's not prohibited to the states, it's up to the states and the people to decide. The way we elect presidents, it's ultimately up to our state legislature to decide if we get to vote or if they get to vote or somebody else gets to vote. When it comes time to running elections for Senate and House races, that is up to our state legislature. They determine the times, places, uh, and manner of elections for representatives and senators, so members of Congress. Um, state legislatures get to decide who can and can't vote in their state. It is astounding to me that we have not, in our general civic government education, made more of a fuss, uh, a, a deal 
talked more about our understanding of government and where the power actually lies, at what level of government and in what branch. And my big takeaway, and these are these, especially when it comes to issues like abortion, when it comes to issues like guns, it is state legislatures that have incredible amounts of power. And in a weird way, recently, sort of in our larger cultural sense, I think we're waking up to that a little bit because you're starting to see states that have, you know, a borderline super majorities, right, uh, in the state house that are doing things like kicking out members um, who who don't agree with their policies, right? Uh, state legislatures are the ones in most states that draw the lines, not just for their own seats, also for the U.S. House. So they're the ones who gerrymander. In North Carolina, they're trying to say that they have the the power to gerrymander based on political party and no one can stop them. It is, in my opinion, far and away the most powerful branch of government, and until recently at least, and I would argue still, we're not giving it nearly enough attention and oxygen. So whoever's listening to this, wherever you are, my recommendation to you would just be to start by knowing who your state legislators are. You can do that by going to openstates.org, plugging in your address, writing down their names, saving their contact info, following them on social media, because according to... All of the research I've done, according to our constitution, those are the most powerful people in your lives in terms of your freedoms, the laws that affect you. Um, and I would say the vast majority of us don't even know who those people are. Uh, I know we got started a little late. Can I ask you three more questions? Okay. Yeah, of course. Uh, first of all, uh, uh, I don't know, not really a question again, just an observation. Let me know what you think. I feel like we don't make nearly a big enough deal out of the fact that you know based on the constitution every state has two senators the founding fathers definitely did could not have foreseen like california i live in california we could lose so, a, we could lose a wyoming and real estate prices wouldn't change here and i think the 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 federal government is and yes i know congress is representative but we all know that senate ultimately trumps congress we live in a nation where um, we have accepted a status quo. Our federal government is bound to be right of the will of the people strictly because of population density. And I don't like it. And it bums me out that uh, it, it would be insane. I, I don't know what the, I don't know what the fix is. Do you make it representative? I, I don't know what the fix is, but nobody even is aware of how crazy it is that every state gets two senators and therefore a Wyoming, every one person, one vote that's constitution or something, right? Like a person in Wyoming's vote is worth so much more than mine for no good reason other than something that was again, written with a feather. So, the same part of the Constitution that says we are allowed to change it and here's how you change it. Mm -hmm. It's also uh, the part of the Constitution that says there are two things that cannot be amended. One is that you cannot take America out of the international slave trade before 1808. Again, a yep. concession to slaveholding states to get them to ratify the Constitution. You cannot change that. Although I will say, and I'm, I'm look, I'm not the biggest Thomas Jefferson fan. There are certainly things I like that he has said. Um, and one thing I like that he did is that on the first available date, he actually did remove the United States from the international slave trade. On the same time, at the same time, he owned more uh, slaves than any other president ever. And when you make a resource scarce, its value increases. 
So is he doing that because he was against slavery or was he trying to limit the population of enslaved people in the United States? He has a lot of them there. It, it, there's, there's some really dark, fucked up things that you can, uh, and that's not even getting into his whole relationship with uh, Sally Hemings that yep. started when she was like 14. Um, but in addition to the Constitution preventing United States from being removed from the international slave trade before 1808, it also says that you cannot deprive a state of equal representation in the Senate without its consent. So it's the specifically says you cannot, the amendment process can't be used to amend that. But what it, it, what is possible is that instead of having proportional Senate, you could abolish the Senate because zero is an equal number of, of senators. Everyone still gets zero. And you would then have a single, a unicameral legislature, mm -hmm. just one legislative body, like, you know, Israel has the Knesset, like plenty of other countries have one branch of government. In fact, Nebraska yeah. has a unicameral legislature. They're the only state in the country with just, they just have a, a Senate, or they call yeah. it a Senate, but it's just one, you know, branch of the, or I should say one, um, uh, one chamber, unicamera, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, just, just one body. Camera, camera, yeah. chamber, word, all the same. Oh, they're all the same word. Uh, exactly. Yeah, there you go. House. Uh, there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. So they just have one. They're, they're, it's not two houses. They're just one house. So this is, it's been proposed. I don't think it's going to happen. Right. Uh, but it's the only way that I see you being able to get around that equal, prop, equal uh, you know, right to votes in the Senate um, unless they consent to being deprived of it um, while being remaining constitutional. Or you could just rewrite the entire constitution if you get uh, enough people to, you know, get to a convention. That's another back way uh, to do it is um, for three, uh, two thirds of states to call a constitutional, their legislatures to call a constitutional convention. You know, or, interestingly enough, the original convention we had was people attended it of the for the purpose of rewriting the Articles of Confederation, and then they just kind of created a brand new constitution. You know, that was not part of the rules of the Article of Confederation. Once they got there, they kind of threw it out and started again. Um, there is this fear that if we were to get to a constitutional convention today, that potentially the same thing would happen. It's called a runaway convention. And there are definitely people out there trying to get a convention to happen. Yeah, that's, that, that's one of the, the budget for term limits. Right. That's yeah. one of my last questions for you, the, this effort okay. to, sure. to, to rewrite the Constitution. What is it? How likely is it to come to pass? And why does that sound so scary? So... It is basically, you know, like I said, two ways to amend the Constitution. One is if uh, two-thirds of the House, like the Equal Rights Amendment, like every amendment we've had so far, two-thirds of the House and two-thirds of the Senate propose it to the states. So I think 11,000 amendments have been introduced in Congress since the beginning of the country. The Constitution took effect in 1789. Only 33 have been proposed to the states. And that's because you need, again, two-thirds of two supermajorities in both uh, chambers. So, and 27 of those became uh, uh, amendments. They were ratified, six were not. So it's very hard uh, to amend the constitution. As I mentioned, a lot of people across the ideological spectrum think it should be easier to amend the constitution slightly. But as far as this convention, this is the second way to um, add an amendment to the constitution. And we've never done it this way. This has this never happened this route where two thirds of state legislatures, so 34, can call a constitutional convention to amend the constitution. 
We don't know how this would go. It doesn't say in the Constitution, like, the rules for such a convention. It doesn't give any detail whatsoever other than it's one of the ways you can amend it is if two-thirds of the legislatures in each state call. Right now, I believe uh, either, I I think it's 31 Mm -hmm. states have called for a constitutional convention. Um, So you only need a couple more legislatures. Some may have rescinded those calls for a convention. It's unclear if that's constitutional. But experts as recently as four years ago have put the odds of a constitutional convention in the next 10, 15 years at like 50, 50. Um, And what if we were to get to that point, again, you still need 38 states to ratify an amendment, but there is precedent for people getting to a convention to change something that exists and then just writing a new thing. That's people's worry. If this effort really is just to add a balanced budget amendment, term limits, um, you know, that's one thing. But if you look at the people who support this convention, my personal gut check is that they don't, they aren't interested in stopping there. I think they want to add other things to the constitution or strip things out of it. Um, well, for, and there's a uh, lot of for, money for, behind for, this and for, it's a long example, game. It's, look, it, it took 50 years to get rid of uh, Roe v. Wade. So it, it's taking a long time, but it's well-funded. Um, and it's really comes down to, you know, do you trust all of the people that would be attending this convention to adhere to the rules of the existing constitution versus trying to, uh, you know, rewrite it and make changes to it, which again, the only other convention we've had went to change something that existed, said, yeah. what exists sucks. It's not good enough. We're mm-hmm. going to do a whole brand new constitution. They didn't decide that until they got there. That is the concern about a convention being runaway. Uh, okay, uh, two follow-ups on that. Uh, what would be the, the name one primary concern? They wouldn't just be there to balance the budget and put in term limits. They would also really secretly want to blank. Um, they would want to remove, um, let's see, they could, uh, ban abortion in the constitution, say that abortion is murder, put that in the constitution. Um, they could remove any sort of, um, existing barriers between, you know, that separate church and state. Church and state, separation of church and state is an, it doesn't, those words aren't in the constitution, but the constitution goes out of its way. By the way, it never mentions God. Uh, It specifically says that you can't be made to swear on, you know, a Bible, take an oath in order to hold office. There's, you can't be uh, forced to take a religious test to hold office. You know, the government can't establish or ban a religion. There are all these protections that separate religion from government in our constitution. If there were people who wanted to remove those protections, maybe they could. Maybe they would make, uh, you know, somehow make Christianity or some other religion. I, I guess it, so it would be Christianity. Yeah. Uh, they would remove the barriers or the separations between church and state and fuse religion into our, or I should say a specific religion, into our government uh, in a way uh, that it was never intended. Yeah, it's probably not the Pastafarians driving that train. Uh, just, I'll leave you, uh, I have other questions. I, I've taken enough of your time. Just, I'm, I'm guessing, I don't know the answer to this question, but I have a pretty, I have a pretty big hunch. 
those the 38 states either the ones that are already on board with this are the ones who are most likely to join the cause join the cause would you say their population 34 uh, okay would you say but if they get to 38 the ones that mm-hmm. are there plus the ones that would be most likely to tip would you guess their cumulative population is greater or less than 50 percent of america's population that's a fascinating question i'm gonna guess um, it's under my guess my guess is that it well Yes and no. I, I would have to see if Texas is one of the states sure. that called sure. for right. um, a convention. I'd have to see if Florida is one of the states that called for a convention. Um, but I would say it's probably it's probably close. Okay. But I w- but I will say that it is that you know in order to stop things in the Senate, you know, people have done studies. You know, getting back to the Senate, you can you know only uh, senators that represent like ten percent of the population can you know stop things dead in their tracks like I know. it's very easy to to stop things um but as far as the the convention um it really is uh um i i think you're right it's it's definitely tends to be less populated states that have signed onto this. I mean, California has not signed onto it. Pennsylvania hasn't signed onto it. Uh, Michigan hasn't signed onto it. New York hasn't signed onto it. So yeah, there's a lot of large states with more large cities that have not. Um, But if anyone is interested in this, I would say you should check out Convention of States. I believe it's conventionofstates.com. This is the leading effort to call a convention to add amendments to the Constitution um, uh, assuming in a way that's constitutional as our constitution stands today. Um, and you can see who supports it and who's behind it and what they want to add and what they want to change. Uh, if, you know, if you're taking them at face value at their word, then it sticks to that. If you think that there are people who may have something else up their sleeve, you know, take that into consideration. Yeah, I would encourage people to check out your social media. It's a really good way to stay current on issues of this nature. But um, I'll also remind everybody about your book, OMG WTF. Does the cons- what does the <laughs> WTF does the Constitution actually say? I'll vouch for the subtitle. It is a very non-boring guide to how our democracy is supposed to work. Thank you. Uh, thank you for going along with me, Ben Sheehan. It's my pleasure, man. Thanks for having me. 